Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. So I want to invite you this morning to find your Bibles and uh, open them up to the book of Haggai. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's one underneath a chair rack real close by. It's a hard copy of God's Word. Go ahead and take that, open that up, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a clue here. Page 744 will get you right to the book of Haggai. For the rest of us, it's that little... That little-known book in the Old Testament, and we've been sort of fumbling our way each week to try to find it. Hopefully, you've gotten a little bit more used to where it is. This is our fourth message and our final message in this relatively short book. Two chapters, just 38 verses, but we have been journeying through this. We've been navigating through this, and I believe that the Spirit of God has been teaching us from God's Word. And so if you're just now joining us, we're calling this series Kingdom First. Kingdom First. And the story of Haggai is really sort of right in the middle of Israel's history. And so let me give you a little bit of the backstory, the backdrop of what's going on. If you're just jumping into this with us, there is a group of Jewish people who are a remnant of the people of God. They have come back just recently. They have come back to the city of God, to Jerusalem, Because 65 years prior, a nation by the name of Babylon came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, laid their temple in ruins, left it in in a heap of rubble, and took all of the people of God 900 miles away into exile. 50 years after Babylon does that, another nation by the name of Persia comes in and defeats Babylon and assumes all of the responsibility of the Jewish people, but the Persians are more religiously tolerant than the Babylonians are, and so they say to these Jewish people, if you would like to go back to your homeland, to your city, and rebuild your lives, you can do that. And so a small remnant of them take them up on that offer. Some of them stay, but many of them go back, and they begin to rebuild their lives, and they begin to rebuild the temple because the temple was the dwelling place of God among his people. But shortly after they begin to prioritize that temple and rebuild that temple, some of the neighboring nations hear about what's going on and they begin to threaten the people of God and the people of God stand down. And they leave a foundation that was started, they leave it unfinished. And 15 years pass and that brings us to the book of Haggai. Haggai is a prophet and the the role of a prophet was to be the mouthpiece of God. To bring the word of God to the people. And so Haggai comes on the scene and he has a message. As a matter of fact, he has four. Four messages that we have been learning from all throughout this book. And the first message is about how the people of God must prioritize the kingdom first. They've gone back to their castles and their kingdoms and they've been been paneling their houses and they have been prioritizing their families and, and their lives, but the temple of God was still just in ruins. And so that first message is a call to go to the hills and to bring the wood and to build the house of God, to prioritize once again the presence of God among his people. Well, then the second message is the message of kingdom vision. There were a group of elderly people among the people of God who would have remembered the first temple, Solomon's temple, some 65 or 70 years before. And the reality was that this new temple that they were building was nothing quite like Solomon's. It was rather bland. It was rather ordinary. It was just more functional than beautiful. And Solomon's temple was ornate and full of gold and lily work. And they they remembered, they were looking back in the rearview mirror to to the good old days and the glory days of when the temple used to look like that. And they're comparing it with the temple in Haggai's day. And they're saying it's just nothing like what it used to be. And the message from the prophet is you need to look forward. The presence of God hasn't changed Though ministry has changed, and though the temple might look different, God's presence has not. It remains the same. And the third message then from the prophet last Sunday, we looked at the message of kingdom grace. That here the people of God were putting their hands to the holy work of the temple, thinking that that was transferring the holiness of God to them. 
And Haggai says that's not how God's holiness works. As a matter of fact, your hands are pervasively unclean. And so you are doing the work of God, and the uncleanness of your hands is actually transferring to the work of God. And so you need the gracious, kind, benevolent blessing of God that is unconditional. Because your work and your striving and your effort cannot earn you and merit you a relationship with Yahweh. It is only through the benevolence and the grace and the kindness of God. And that brings us to the fourth and final message from Haggai the prophet. So I've entitled this message, Kingdom Promise. Kingdom Promise. Hopefully you found your way there to Haggai chapter 2. We're right at the end in verse 20. We'll read this last paragraph as we close out this book. Follow along with me if you would. Haggai chapter 2 verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. This is the same day as the third message from last week. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. They're going to turn on each other. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Here's the big idea. What's going on here? This is what sits over top of our text, and we'll unpack this over the next 30 minutes or so. The big idea is this. God's kingdom is secured by God's promises. The promise maker is also the promise keeper. ADX Florence is considered the highest security prison in the world. It is actually not considered a maximum security. It's a level above that. It's considered a super max security prison. This prison was built to house those who were most capable of extreme violence, either to others or to themselves, or the, those who were the greatest uh, threat to, our, uh, to humanity. They, were, they are put into this ADX Florence super max security prison. Prisoners in this prison are confined for 23 hours each day in a single cell. They don't share a cell. Nobody else is in the cell with them. They are by themselves. Each of these cells is poured and reinforced by concrete. The items in this cell consist of a desk, a stool, and a bed, all poured from concrete. There is a unit in the cell that has three purposes. It is a toilet, but it also serves as a sink and a drinking fountain. I'm not sure how all that works together, but it's a single unit. Also in these cells, there is a shower because they don't ever leave their cell to take a shower. Those showers are on a timer to prevent flooding. There's a black and white closed circuit TV that only shows educational and religious programs. Each of these cells has a four-inch by four foot wide window, and it is the only sort of source of natural light looking at, flowing into those cells, and those windows are looking out into the courtyard, and they're narrower like that so that the prisoners cannot get a bearing on where they might be in relation to the rest of the complex. The security at the ADX Florence prison is unprecedented. Motion detectors, cameras, 1,400 remote control Steel doors, 24 hours of monitoring every day. Pressure pads around the perimeter, 12-foot razor wire fences. Constant patrolling of heavily armed guards. Currently, there are 316 inmates housed, including the 2013 Boston bomber. But here's why I give that illustration and share that information about the ADX Florence Supermax Security Prison because since, it's, since it was built in 2014, not a single person has ever escaped. There have been attempts, 
but no one has ever been successful to break out of the ADX Florence Supermax security system. So I say that to say this, that you are more likely to break free from the ADX Florence than to break free from God's kingdom promises. Because the promise maker is also the promise keeper, and his promises are keeping secure the reality of his kingdom. And so his kingdom will come to pass. His will will be done on earth because God has made some promises. And those promises secure his kingdom. It's easy for us to lose confidence in what God is doing in our lives. Sometimes we miss the forest for the trees, as they say. We're so focused on our circumstances, on our life. Maybe the people of God here in Haggai are so focused on the rubble and the work that was set before them and the reality of the decimation of the kingdom of Babylon from some 65 years before. We can be so consumed and focused on what our life looks like right now that we lose confidence in what God is doing or what God could do in and through our lives. And yet it is through the promises of God that we are tethered again to the person of God. And our confidence is reinvigorated and our hearts are reestablished. And so of all the people in the story of Haggai who have every reason to be most discouraged, Zerubbabel would be right at the top. Zerubbabel is called the governor of the people. That term governor was one given to him by the Persians because Zerubbabel was actually in the kingly line of David. So they stripped him of his royal status. They demoted him and just left him as a governor. So here is the governor who should be the king, here responsible for leading the people in restoring the temple and rebuilding the rubble, and yet he's discouraged at all the work that lies ahead. So God has a message for Zerubbabel. This fourth and final message through the prophet, it's different from the first three. And it's different for two reasons. The first reason is that the first three messages were given to Joshua, to Zerubbabel, and to all the remnant of the people of Israel. But this fourth and final message is a DM. It's a direct message to Zerubbabel. Just to him. And it's different also because the first three messages were messages from God to the people about what they were supposed to do. But this fourth and final message is God saying, this is what I am going to do. And so here we find the promises of God through the prophet that secure God's kingdom. So the question for us today that this paragraph is going to help answer and unpack is what kingdom promises does God make? What has God promised that he is going to do that secure the reality and the validity of his kingdom? There are two promises in our text, but there's also a third promise that I want to share to you that is from the entire book of Haggai as we seek to conclude our time in this book. So three total promises that we find from our text and from this book. God's promises, what are they? Number one, God promises total destruction of the wicked. Complete destruction of all that is evil and all that is wicked in the world. We find that in verses 21 and 22. Look at it again there with me. He says, speak to Zerubbabel. Here is the direct message, governor of Judah, saying, I am about, this is God speaking, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. There is a major battle brewing on the horizon of apocalyptic proportions. Now, we ask ourselves as we read this, has this battle already taken place? Do we see a battle in our world's history that is portrayed by God shaking the earth and shaking the heavens? Has, has, did this battle take place during Zerubbabel's day or is it yet to come? And the answer that we find as we study Scripture, all of Scripture, is that it is a battle that has not yet taken place. 
God is speaking through Haggai to Zerubbabel, speaking of a day far off in the future and yet one that is imminent because God says, I am about to do this. And it is a battle where God will demonstrate his divine power over all of the cosmos. He will shake not just the earth but also the heavens. It is a battle, battle where God will establish his authority as ruler over all. He says, I will overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. In Zerubbabel's mind, no doubt, he's thinking of the Persian kingdom. But it's not just the kingdom, but all of the kingdoms. And it is a battle where God will decimate all of the military might of the world powers as he destroys all of their strength and all of the horses and the riders will be thrown into the sea. They will turn on one another. And the timeline of this battle, God says it's sooner rather than later. I'm about to do this. It's imminent. It's coming. It is going to happen. Now this is not God as a warlord on a rampage for global dominance. This is the destruction of all that is evil and all that is wicked in the world in order that peace might reign. If you recall from two messages ago or earlier, if you just let your eyes go up the page or maybe turn, turn back a page in chapter 2, verse 9, God says in verse 7, he says, I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. There's the shaking again. But then look at verse 9 of chapter 2. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. And so in order for there to be a peace that rules and reigns, all that is wrong and all that is evil and all that is wicked must be first removed. So what's going on here? Well, the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. It explains itself. And so I want to go to two other passages, and I want you to turn there with me because I want us to see what the Bible speaks of and says about this event. The first passage I want to turn to is the book of Hebrews. It's in your New Testament, almost towards the end of your Bible. If you're using the Bible from underneath the chair, it's page 949. It'll get you right to Hebrews chapter 12. We don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we do know who it was written to, the Hebrew people. And the Jewish people were wanting to go back to the old ways and the old covenant and the old laws and the old rituals. And so the writer of Hebrews writes this book to say, Jesus is better. He is the better way. He is the new way. And we get to chapter 12. We get to verse 25. And the writer says this. Follow along with me. He says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Well, who's speaking? God. For if they, speaking of the Egyptians, think of the book of Exodus, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, referencing back to the book of Exodus with the Egyptians, at that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, and here's a direct quote, from what we just read in Haggai. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So what is this shaking of the earth and the, and the heavens? What is God doing? He is shaking so that those things that have been made, in other words, all of the kingdoms of men, all of our castles and all of our fortresses and all of man's best attempt to build up his own fame, all of those things that have been made will be shaken and will be decimated in order that the things that cannot be shaken might remain. Well, what are the things that cannot be shaken? God's eternal kingdom. So God is going to come on this day. He's going to shake not just the earth as he did in the book of Exodus, but also the earth and the heavens in order that the kingdoms of men might be destroyed and the kingdom of God might be established. One more passage. I want you to turn over. Keep going to the right to the book of Revelation. This is the final book in our New Testament the book of Revelation is written by a man by the name of John. It's a vision into the future. And John, through the Spirit's 
illumination is receiving this revelation of the increasing judgment that is going to come at the end or near the end of time. And as you read through the book of Revelation, the judgment just continues to increase. And we get to these seven what are called bowl judgments. And in Revelation 16, verse 12, we have the second to last of these bold judgments. I'm sorry, verse 12 of chapter 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water dried, dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Something's brewing. There's a battle that's beginning to brew here. And I saw, John writes, coming out of the mouth of three characters here, the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false, pro false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. In John's best description, that's how he's describing what he's seeing here. And he says in verse 14, for they are demonic spirits. So these three characters, this dragon, and this beast, and this false prophet, they're being demonically influenced here. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole earth to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Verse 15, in parentheses, we see a word of encouragement from Jesus to his people. He says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be ex seen exposed. Don't miss this day. Don't let this day catch you off guard. Verse 16. And they assembled them at the place that in the Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now Armageddon is a literal place in the Jezreel Valley. Overlooking. It is a mountain that is overlooking a valley. And this is the physical location that the battle that was prophesied in the book of Haggai is going to one day take place. And then we have in verse uh, 17, the seventh and final bold judgment is being poured out. See it there in Revelation 16, 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Does that sound like somebody else you heard on a cross? And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth so great was that earthquake the great city which is Jerusalem was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God they still would not repent. They still would not turn to their creator. And so what do we see here? That sounds a whole lot like what we're reading about in the book of Haggai. A great earthquake such as no one has ever seen in all of our world's history. The greatest earthquake to date was on May 22, 1960 in South Chile. 9.5 magnitude on the Richter scale. But even that earthquake that caused many multiple rippling effects of additional earthquakes and additional tsunamis won't even compare to the earthquake we just read about in the book of Revelation and the one that's prophesied in the book of Haggai. So what does this mean? What do we have to learn from the book of Haggai? Why is God saying to Zerubbabel that this day is coming when all that is evil and all that is wrong and all that is broken will ultimately be brought to ruin? We learn here that God will not share the throne of his kingdom. Again, this, this war that is coming, it's, it's not about God wanting global dominance and just trying to sort of flex to all the armies of the world. These armies are coming to him to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. It's a demonstration of what is evil and even what we find in the book of Revelation, it's demonically influenced. And so we know this to be true. Every great story ends with all that is good winning and all that is evil losing. And that's what we see at the end of God's narrative and the end of God's gospel story. And so Jesus' first coming as a baby was to bring defeat to his spiritual enemies on the cross. 
But his second coming, as he comes on a white horse, will be to defeat his physical enemies and to eradicate all that is evil and all that is wrong. But it's not just the future, future throne that God does not want to share. It's also the throne of your heart and the throne of your life. And we sang about it a moment ago, make room for him. And it's so easy to think that, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a I'm a follower of Jesus. I put my faith in Christ, and so, of course, he has the throne of my heart. But let me ask you it this way. What percentage of your heart does God rule? Because it's not just a yes or no question. It's not just does he rule or does he not rule. It's a percentage question because I have met more than one Christian who says I'm a follower of Jesus, and yet their life is not fully and completely given over to the lordship of Christ See, your heart has a throne with a seating capacity for one. And any time we go after lesser kingdoms, or any time we pursue lesser things, or any time we allow evil or sin or the, the habitual wrongs into our life, we are giving place to the devil in our life and allowing the lordship of Christ to be dethroned. We don't lose the salvation. We don't lose our status as a son or a daughter of God, but we do lose the joy and we do lose the blessing and we do lose the, the, the sense of his presence in our life. And so don't share the throne of your life with anyone else or anything else. Let Christ rule supreme. God's promise of that future victory secures the victory for me today. I can have victory today over sin. I can have victory today over the world, the flesh, and the devil because there is a future victory where Christ will once and for all eradicate all that is evil. So God promises one day total destruction of all that is wicked. Number two, God promises full repair of the covenant. We're going to get just a little more positive here in the second point. God promises full repair of the covenant. I want you to see it. We're back in Haggai now. I want you to see it in verse 23. On that day, referencing the one that we just talked about in the book of Revelation. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you declares the Lord of hosts. I will make you like a signet ring. Now what's going on there? What is a signet ring? Well, in antiquity, kings would often have a ring on their right hand and it would bear the, their inscription, their identification. And on legal documents or sometimes even on letters that were being sent, those documents would be sealed with wax or with clay. And then the king would, would imprint that seal, that identification that authenticated that document with his unique seal, his authority, his identification. So God is saying to Zerubbabel, I'm going to take you on that day and make you like a signet ring. He will not be the signet ring, but he will be a symbol of that signet ring. Now, why is this important? Well, there is a really fascinating backstory here behind the life of Zerubbabel. And as we dive into the Old Testament and we begin to understand what's going on in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a promise to a king by the name of David. And God makes a covenant promise to David that one day through David's line there would come a king who would be unlike all the other kings. He would be the king of kings. He would be the Lord of lords. And that he would not just establish an earthly kingdom but ultimately a heavenly and a spiritual kingdom. And God made that covenant promise to David that through his line that king would be born. Well, generation after generation, kings would come and kings would go all longing for and looking for the day when that ultimate king would come. Well, those kings ultimately and eventually started to go sideways from the covenant. And they rebelled against God's will and they led the people away from God's will. And so a king comes along in the line of David and his name is Jehoiakim. And God sends judgment to and through Jehoiakim. And in Jeremiah twenty two twenty four, God says, As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, who is this king, Jehoiakim, 
the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, God says, yet I would tear you off. So God is going to take the ring off of the right hand of this king, Jehoiakim, and send judgment to the people because of their rebellion to the covenant. And this, under the rule and under the, the watch of Jehoiakim, this is when Babylon would come in and destroy the temple and lead the people of God into captivity. But here's what you need to understand about Jehoiakim. He's the grandfather of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, who God is speaking to in our fourth and final message of Haggai, is the grandson of Jehoiakim who had the signet ring torn off of his right hand because of his rebellion to the covenant. And so what God is saying now to Zerubbabel, he's he's saying, I am going to repair the covenant through you. I am going to put the ring back on your right hand, Zerubbabel. I'm going to reinstate the kingly line from David through you, Zerubbabel. So now you will be like a signet ring. That is a picture of my covenant to God's people. And ten generations later, You can read about it in the genealogy where we sometimes get lost in all of the names in Matthew chapter 1. There in that genealogy, ten generations later, you will find Jehoiakim and you will find also Zerubbabel, but you will also find another man by the name of Jesus. And he would be a baby who would be born, who would grow up and walk through this very temple. That Zerubbabel is beginning to rebuild. And just outside of that temple, some 33 years after his birth, he would be crucified and hung on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. But then he would rise again three days later. And then he would ascend to be with the Father. And he would sit down at the right hand of the Father. And that position is significant because for one to sit meant that the the work was finished. And so this king would sit down at the right hand of the father, establishing his throne forever, but then he wouldn't be done. His work would continue as he would begin to gather a people known as the church, and he would send them out into the world to continue to expand and to build his kingdom. And at the right time, when the father would say, that son would go, and he would, he would establish his rule and reign and consummate his final throne on the earth forever. That's pretty good. Here's why it's significant. Because there is a gospel line. If Zerubbabel is like the signet ring, then who is the signet ring? Jesus. Jesus bears the image of the Father the identification and the authority of the Father. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the Father of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Listen, and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus possesses the full weight of God's glory and authority. Jesus is the the one who identified with man so that man could identify with God. And it is only through the imprint of Christ on your life that you and I can have a relationship with the Father. And so here's the gospel line. God repaired the covenant from David to Jesus through Zerubbabel. And now God will repair the covenant from me to himself through Christ. Jesus is what repairs our covenant relationship with God. Just like Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jehoiakim, we have broken the covenant. Our sin has torn off the ring. Our sin has separated us from fellowship with God. And so we need to be restored. The covenant needs to be repaired. We must be brought back into a relationship. And all of our striving and all of our working and all of our effort and all of the steps that we might try to make ourselves right with God and to restore ourselves into that relationship will not work. We need the one who is the very imprint of the nature of God to stamp himself, his identification, and his authority on our life to reinstate us into that relationship and repair the covenant. And that's what Christ came to do. It's what he came to do for you. It's what he came to do for me. And now, just as Haggai will say through, or really God will say through Zerubbabel, God says, I will take you. God says, I have chosen you, because that's gospel language. God desires for your life to be sealed with his identity. Has Jesus sealed your life? Have you been stamped with the imprint of Christ? 
Not your effort, not your work, not your religion, not your ability, not your merit, but Jesus alone. You say, John, I feel like just about every week you ask a question something like that. (laughs) Yeah, because that is the most significant thing for us to understand here during the, the short time that God gives us in our life. Am I truly a follower of Christ? You are not a follower of Christ because you come to church. You are not a follower of Christ because you read your Bible. You are not a follower of Christ because you pray or do good deeds. You are a follower of Christ because Jesus has stamped your life with his very identity. And he has repaired the covenant relationship between you and God. And if there has never been a moment where you have come by faith and trusted in Jesus alone, friend, today is the day of salvation for you. Trust Jesus alone. Coca-Cola is one of the most iconic American brands. Uh, You might call it soda. If you're from the Midwest, like my wife, you call it pop. I don't know where that came from. It's pop. We got one vote for pop. Soda, pop, whatever you call it, Coca-Cola, right? You may or may not know this, but originally Coca-Cola was used for, uh, as a medicinal tonic. It was, it, was, it was used for pharmaceutical reasons, and it was a thick syrup. And so if you had an ailment, this is back in the late 1800s, you would go to the local pharmacy and you would, they would take this thick syrup called Coca-Cola or Coke and they would, they would dilute it with a soda water and you would drink it and it would give some of that relief for medicinal reasons. And it actually became a little bit of a, um, a, little bit of a social thing for people to do that they would, they would go and they would kind of gather at the pharmacy and they would get their bottle of Coke and they would drink it together and they would just kind of hang out and ca- shoot the breeze and catch up on life. Well, someone went to that pharmacist and said, I think you could make some money on this. If you were to bottle this, dilute it, bottle it, and get it into people's homes, they would, they would just enjoy this. Well, the pharmacist didn't think that that was going to go anywhere, didn't really believe that that was a really good idea. And so in, in 1899, he sold the bottling rights for Coca-Cola for $1. He just didn't think it was going to amount to anything. 20 years later, that company was sold for $25 million. And today, it is one of the world's most recognized brands and is valued around $250 billion. Now, to add insult to injury for that particular pharmacist, he never actually collected his dollar. He just thought, this is, this is a waste of time. You know what? I'm, just, I'm not even going to collect the dollar. Talk about one of the greatest missed opportunities in all of history. But I would present to you this morning that there is a greater missed opportunity. When someone understands who Jesus is and what he has come to do, and they just simply say, you know what, I'm good. I don't need Christ. I don't need Jesus. I can do this on my own. I can figure this out. I don't believe that he is who he said he was. And friend, if you're here today and maybe you've come once or twice or maybe you've been coming for a couple of weeks or a couple of months and maybe you've even just sort of gotten comfortable around other Christians but you've never come and put faith in Christ alone, it will be the saddest, gravest missed opportunity for you to pass by and to say, you know what, I don't need Jesus. He has come to place his identification and his authority on your life. He has come to restore the covenant, to restore the relationship so that you can know and be known by God. And so if you have not yet put faith in Christ, friend, do that today. Trust him today. This is what God promises. Full repair of the covenant. What a beautiful gospel foreshadowing right there in the middle, really the end of the Old Testament through Haggai and through Zerubbabel. Well, there's one final promise, and I believe that this promise kind of sits over the whole book. God's promises secure his kingdom. And the third and final promise that we find here in the book of Haggai is this. God promises final consummation of his kingdom. The story of Haggai is over. The book's done. We got right to the end. The final period has been printed on the page But God's story still continues. 
God's kingdom story is still being written. So while Haggai has ended, the story has not. The temple that Zerubbabel is building here with the remnant of the people would eventually be completed several years later in 516 B.C. Herod would come along several hundred years later. He would, he would sort of build out this particular temple. Again, the one that we're reading about in Haggai was very modest. Haggai would come, come along and really deck it out, really build it out put improvements on it to the point that many believe that Herod's temple was even more ornate than Solomon's temple. Herod's temple would be the one that we find in the Gospels where Jesus is doing life and doing ministry. He would be dedicated in Herod's temple. He would, that Herod's temple would be the one that he would go into and turn the tables over a week before his crucifixion because they had made God's house a den of thieves. In 70 A.D., Herod's temple, the one that Zerubbabel is building here that would continue through Herod, would be destroyed by the Roman Empire, even as Jesus prophesied. And it's the rubble that remains today in Jerusalem. But before Christ's death, and then again before his ascension, Jesus promised that his presence would come. And in Acts 2, his presence came through the person of the Spirit. And so now today, God's temple is his people. We who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, we are the very presence of God and God's people who are bound together through our mutual covenant relationship with Jesus. We now corporately and collectively are the presence. We are the temple of God in the world today. But God's kingdom is not yet fully consummated. And there is coming a day when God will establish his final and eternal kingdom where he will be the temple. Now I want to share with you in Romans Chapter 8, I'm going to put it up on the screen here, because Paul writes about this coming day and the, the longing and the yearning that we all have. We all sense this, that we're not quite there yet. The end of the story has not yet come. Paul writes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed, the glory that is to come. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. Do you feel that? Do you feel the yearning? Do you feel that groaning inside? Something's not quite done. Something's not quite settled. The kingdom of God is not quite consummated. Yes, it's already here in, it, in, in his people, at work through his people, but there is still a final day that is coming. We are groaning inwardly, but we are also waiting eagerly because there is an anticipation. There is an expectation of that day that is to come. So the question becomes, what do we do between now and then? What do we do knowing that the story's not over? The kingdom is very much alive and at work today, but it's not fully consummated yet. What do we do between now and that day? Well, I'm going to give you a second outline within the outline, okay? You're getting a two for the price of one today. As a kingdom first Christian, how should we live given the reality that the, king, that the kingdom is not yet fully consummated and yet God has promised that it will be? As a kingdom first Christian, first I build the temple. I build the temple first. Now, don't read that and think brick and mortar. If the book of Haggai has taught us anything, the temple of God is not about brick and mortar and a building and a box. One scholar said that the temple represents the seat of Yahweh's presence. So the temple, when we prioritize the building of the temple, what we are doing is we are prioritizing the presence of God. We are making room. We are clearing the way. We are saying, God, I want your presence in my life. I want your work in my life. I want your preeminence in my life. C.S. Lewis wrote several allegorical works, one of which is The Voyager of the Dawn Treader. And much, if you're not familiar with C.S. Lewis's works, much of them are, are allegorical and they're pointing to something of the spiritual realm and what God is doing. In one of these stories, The Voyager of the Dawn Treader, there's a narrative towards the end between Lucy, who's a little girl, and Aslan, who's the lion who represents Christ. And Lucy says, it isn't Narnia, you know. It's you. We shan't meet you there, and how can we live never meeting you? But you shall meet me, dear one, said Aslan. Are you there too, sir, said Edmund? I am, 
said Aslan, but there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were born. This is the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. See, God's great desire for his people is that they would know him, that they would experience his presence And so to prioritize the temple and to build the temple is to practice those spiritual practices that give way to his presence. It is to prioritize prayer. It is to prioritize solitude. It is to prioritize listening. It is to prioritize gathering in worship with his people. It is to practice the Sabbath. All of these spiritual practices, what they do, it is is prioritizing the building of the temple and the presence of God in our life. What are you doing to prioritize the presence of God in your life? In what ways are you making room for him? Because as kingdom first Christians, we build the temple first. It's not about what we do. It's about his presence and his abiding in our life. But number two, as a kingdom first Christian, I also embrace my role in God's kingdom. God says to Zerubbabel, you have a role to play. I'm going to make you like a signet ring. But in very much the same way, you and I are now like that signet ring. We are not the ring, but we we bear the impression of that ring. We bear the image of Christ on our lives. So every time we love, every time we do a good deed, every time we lift a burden, every time we pray for someone else or pray with someone else, we are bearing the image of God to the world. And oftentimes we think to ourselves, well, if it's not grand, it's not great. If I'm not seeing the sensational in my life, if I'm not having these great answers to my prayer, if I'm not leading many people to Christ, then God must not have a place for me, but listen, Zerubbabel, in very much the same way, looked at the rubble around his life, saw himself stripped of his royalty and his kingly uh, role and his kingly title, and no doubt even thought to himself, what role do I have to play in this mess? And God looks at us and says, you have a role to play. I am going to make you like the signet ring, and you are going to be my image bearers to the world so that they might come and so that they might have their covenant relationship repaired as well. But thirdly, as kingdom first Christians, I also must open my eyes to the grander story. Haggai is not just about Haggai. Zerubbabel is not just about Zerubbabel. God is doing something more. And if we see our story in isolation, if we think that our story is somehow disconnected from the greater story of God's gospel narrative, we are going to miss what God is desiring to do in and through us. So don't just focus on the pile of rubble that you say is your life. But understand that you were made for more. Your life is being woven into the tapestry of God's gospel narrative. The one thread of your life is part of a greater, grander picture of God's glory. And so we understand that God has promised the one-day consummation of his kingdom. But that kingdom has not yet come in its full extent to us. And so what do we do between now and then? God still has a work for us to do. The story's not over. You have a part to play prioritize the building of the temple in the presence of God. Understand that you have a role and recognize that there is a greater story that God is writing and you and I are just a thread in that tapestry. As God is writing his greater story, we have a part to play. So here's that big idea. God's kingdom is secured by God's promises. You have maximum security you have super max security, and then you have kingdom security. You have kingdom security that is locked in by God's promises because the promise maker is also the promise keeper. And God has made some promises for us. That was a little bit of a different message there at the end of Haggai. But these are the words of God to a king named Zerubbabel, but they are also the words of God to us And his promises secure his kingdom in our life. And so we can have confidence and our hearts can be settled that God is not yet done. So we want to learn to live from this. So I have two questions by way of conclusion here. The first question I've already asked, but I want to ask it again. 
And it's this. Has Jesus sealed your life? Has his identification been stamped onto your life? Are you truly a Christian? It's interesting that in the book of Acts, in the early church, they were called Christians. That was a bit of a derogatory term, but the word Christian means little Christ. In other words, you're like a signet ring. You bear that image. Has his image been stamped onto your life? Are you truly a follower of Christ or have you just been going through the motions? Do you have religion but not Jesus? Do you have good works but not Jesus? Do you have your best effort and your best striving but not Jesus? If you don't have Jesus, friend, today by faith, trust in the finished work of Jesus because it's only through Christ that you can have his identification stamped on your life and the repairing of that relationship with God. My second question is this. If you are a follower of Christ, where do you need to embrace your role in God's kingdom story? Maybe you've thought that your role is insignificant. Maybe you don't even feel like you have a role to play. But now there is God wanting you to embrace your specific role. God's word to Zerubbabel, I will take you and I will make you like a signet ring. Zerubbabel, I have a work for you to do. And God could say the same to us today. Embrace the role that you have to play in God's kingdom work. God's kingdom is secured by God's promises. That's the book of Haggai. A short book, but packed with gospel truth for us today. And so I hope that you will never read the book of Haggai the same again. I hope that you will see it and understand what God is wanting his people to do in prioritizing that temple and also what God is wanting to do through Zerubbabel and through Christ and now through our lives today. Can we pray together? Father, we thank you for the work that you are doing in our lives. We thank you for the work of your word. We thank you for the gospel truth. We pray that you would continue to do whatever you desire to do. And if there's someone here today that is not yet a follower of Christ, if they've not put faith in Jesus, they have not yet had their life stamped with the very identity of Christ, I pray that today by faith they would trust in you. Lord, if there's a Christian here looking at their life, wondering, what is this pile of rubble all about? What significance does my life play? What role does God want me to have? I pray that they would see that you have a unique plan for them that ties into your greater gospel story. And may you be glorified through your church as we live our lives intentionally, empowered by your spirit, pursuing your kingdom, and displaying your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at CityPointAZ. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at CityPoint Church, go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.